I'm Allie. And it's About Time for True Crime. Hey. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm sick. Yeah. If you guys couldn't tell, I'm a little extra. My cold. (laughs) Yes. I'm a little sultry and nasally and all that. Yeah. Smelly cat. Yeah. So we're very, um, (laughs) we're a little day quilled. We're a little day quill drunk. I Um, love day quill drunk. Controversial. I feel like I shouldn't be allowed to make purchases. I don't. I can drive a car. Mm -hmm. Fine. But once I get to where I'm going, I shouldn't be left alone. Yeah. It's kind of where I am. I. uh, That first hour of Dayquil, I am riding something. The first hour is bad. If I. So I try not to drive on Dayquil because I myself am a menace and that's fine. (laughs) Um. But I do love it because I'm going to feel like crap. I want to at least feel like crap, like maybe in outer space or with like an <laughs> existential crisis, you know? Like, maybe a little of both. Yeah. A little dash of that. And, and then once I'm off the day quill, I'm like, oh my God, a package. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, who ordered this? Oh my God, it was me. <laughs> Would you look at that? Address I, to me? Merry Christmas. I already told the credit card to dispute the charge. <laughs> Oopsies. Yeah, yeah. So... That's where I am today, but that being said, I am very excited. I am so pumped, you guys. Today is our last installment of our Ted Bundy series. Yay! Snaps for Abby. Yay! I need a fucking Bundy break, okay? I need a break from this (laughs) A Bundy break. A Bundy break. Much like, give me a break of that Kit Kat bar, give me a break of this motherfucker, okay? Like, I need- From the scrote bag, yes. Yes, the scrote bag, if you will. I can't. I hate him. Yep. I hate everything about it. And today is going to be bad. Capital B-A-D. Bad. Terrible. Awful. Dead. Pun intended because he dies at the end? Or? Yes. Okay. Um, but we get right the closure at the end. Yes. We do get closure. There is a lot that I'll be telling you about today. So again, the same as every single fucking week. I'm just issuing the biggest trigger warning. But today, just know like it will be graphic. It will be worse than the other two combined. Yes. The other two, I wanted to be very, well, in order to get through everything I needed to get through, I wanted to be very concise. And unfortunately, we just didn't know a lot about any of the murders or really what happened up until after Ted was found guilty. Right. Once he realized, okay, this is it. I'm really done for. I may yeah. as well talk. And then he loved talking. Oh, my God. He never shuts the fuck up. But there was a long while there, I think, that he really thought he'd get away with it. Oh, he really did. Or that at least he'd find some technicality that would get him out on something or whatever. But Well, I think the interesting part of that narcissistic personality disorder diagnosis is like, there's definitely a part of him that really just believes it's all about him. And that mixed with the antisocial, you'll see it like at the end of this, I'll share a quote from right before he fried if you will (laughs) and he talks about how like oh in another world if you didn't find pornography well (laughs) his life would be a lot easier oh even like hours before his death not even a full day he was like yeah well it's still about me like (laughs) if i hadn't done all these things my life would be better (laughs) huh How about like 20 other people would still be alive? How about like you piece 36 of shit? confirmed up to 100, if not more? There's definitely more. Oh, there's a thousand percent more. Again, 
There's no fucking way that Karen Epley was his first victim. No way. And I think no. like in 20 years when God knows what we can do with DNA stuff comes out that we'll be Ooh. able to track so much more back to him. But I'll say this first that I am pretty well versed in the Ted Bundy stuff. But yes, you guys probably don't know this. But way back when a- Abby and I started ATFTC, hey. we did sort of have this like a list of like big hitters that were like dibs kind of. Yes. Like, uh, Danny Rowling was on mine. Jerry Brudos was on mine. Ted Bundy was on hers. Keith Raniere was on hers. So yeah. there were just these certain bigger cases that I think people have heard of that we called dibs on and she called dibs on Bundy. So I have steered clear of anything on him because I want to learn from my favorite teacher. Oh, so I didn't dive into it so any of the things that have like been talked about now and new things that have come out on tv i'm like "Mm -mm -mm, gotta hear it from my girl first i will not so i'm probably a little less in the know than i maybe would have been right Uh, that being said i'm learning a lot and i'm loving it but all of that to say (laughs) yes (laughs) that i think that there's a piece of him that loved having the power and the control of I know something you don't know. And he's uh-huh. like a kid like like snickering in the corner. Like I I have this information that you want so badly and I'm going to take it with me and you're going to kill me. Yep. And you're never going to have the answers to this because of this. And I think that... And it's mine. Yes. Yeah. And like I have it. It's not that valuable, but it's important to me because you want it. Right. It means nothing to me. It means everything to you, which well, gives me power. It's kind of the same line of thinking as when he fucking stole things. That's he didn't what I mean. Care. It's that same, that same vein of its value wasn't really in what it was to him, but it, what it what, what it meant to other people. And now right. I have this thing, and now it's mine. I took that, and I think that there was probably a game to him till the very end. Of yeah. why there's probably so many more victims than who we're going to talk about today. Oh, 100%. I don't even feel confident that I hit everyone. And if I had it my way, every single victim would have their own episode. Because they're full because lives. Because they should. They're full people. They're not just a list of 36 names that survived or didn't survive this man. And there are ones that will stick with you more than others, yeah. I think. Like... The newscaster one, the one who went on and did the ski. Linda Ann Healy. Yes. Uh, when the detective had had almost like this connection with her. And that yeah. just relates to me so much because when I would be driving to school, listening to the radio or something way back, you know what I'm saying? Right. Like you would have your your comfort channels or your, your now it's like your comfort podcast. Like I have people where I'm like, okay, I feel I'm hanging out with my friends today. Right. I'm cleaning my house and we're doing this together. And so there's this routine and this habit that you build that's comforting to you right and she had that with this woman the other one that gets me is um i think it was melissa smith whose dad was the police chief yes and you would think that she would have had every skill that her dad would have ingrained in her like hey there's real assholes out there there's really dangerous people out there and they look like you and i and they do this and you'd think that she would be so well equipped but it didn't matter because it didn't matter how well equipped you were Right. If Ted Bundy had decided you were the next one. And I think that scares a lot of people about Ted Bundy because it's like, oh, okay, well, if he could, anyone could. And yes, anyone could. I think that's part of... Not everyone will, but anyone could, I guess. Yeah. And I I think that's part of at least my fascination with true crime is how do you spot those red flags? How do you... 
what alarm bells need to be going off? If someone tells me like, hey, uh, draw me a picture of a butterfly. I want to use it as a stamp forever. That doesn't bug me. If someone said, hey, draw me your signature. I want to use it as a stamp forever. That bugs me. Like, same situation, mm-hmm. different technicalities, very different meanings. I'm still hung up on that stamp. I know. Where's the fucking stamp, Albert? And in case you guys don't know what we're talking about, we are talking about the Rolex killer that we covered in episode 97. If you haven't listened to that yet, you should. Anyway, okay. I think anyway. we should jump into it. So, so start yes. us off. Let's talk. And again, as always, all of my sources are down below. I have a big ass Google Doc for all of you. Um, I think there's three or four pages now. Hells yeah. Of resources. So you can just click on through. It's everything I watch. It's everything I listen. So go forth and be haunted by this man i suppose (laughs) lastly just like last time we're going to do a quick recap if you haven't listened to parts one and two go ahead and do that now we'll wait we'll still be here okay okay so (laughs) welcome back if you're still here you might remember that week one we discussed ted's childhood through college his mental health diagnoses first potential victim and first confirmed victim last week we discussed 17 of Ted's victims through the years of 1974 to 77. We ended with Ted escaping prison while on trial for Karen Campbell after he was caught for Carol DeRange's assault and attempted murder. However, on June 7, 1977, Theodore Knees of Steel piece of shit Bundy jumped out a second story courthouse library window and he's in the wind. That's where we're picking up today. So now we finally understand what you've been meaning when you said needs of steel. <laughs> he literally practiced on his bunk beds and no one was like, yeah, that's not an issue. He's like really trying to not hurt himself by learning to jump from high spaces. What a nut that guy is. Oh my gosh. Did you see him casing the library? Can't be connected. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so what an odd fella. <laughs> He's a funny looking fella, don't you think? <laughs> so we're picking up in 1977. Ted is in Colorado, standing trial for the murder of Karen Campbell, a young woman he killed, I guess at this point, (laughs) allegedly, but he killed, while she was on vacation with her fiancé. That was when Ted Knees of Steel jumped out the second story courthouse library window, and he was in the wind. According to ABC News, there was an interview with Ted later where he said, over the months, I had noticed a number of opportunities to just walk right out. That's so fucking concerning. He said, I thought a great deal about escape and I didn't know if I had the guts to do it, quite frankly. Brother, it's not about guts. You're just dumb. I forget. I want to say it's a European country. It might be like great. Switzerland, I think, or Sweden is. I think you you know where I'm going with this. Yes. Yes. Where. Yeah. I'm not going to try to guess the country because um, I'll probably be wrong. But there is a country out there. Damn it. That (laughs) (laughs) says. Man's desire to be free is innate. Yes. So we will never punish somebody on top of their already given punishment for escaping or for trying right. to escape. Like it's it's ingrained in us that if we're in a cage, we want to be free. And so if they get out when we find them, we're not adding time for that. Right. Which I just think is like, what a mind fuck. But okay. Yep. No, I kind of like it. I mean, a lot of European countries treat their offenders significantly better than we do. Um, I mean, they're also significantly smaller countries because the U.S. is fucking ginormous when you think about it. Correct. But um, 
I do kind of like that as a theory in general, just being like, yeah, bud, we get it. But no, back with us. Here we go. (laughs) I don't know. To me, I struggle with that because it's like you're there for a reason. Yeah, I do. And I I do in that I want someone to take accountability. In this case, absolutely fucking not, because his intent was to escape and to commit more crime. Which he did, right? Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about the Florida State University murders today. Okay, let's get into it. Yeah. So anyway, after he had escaped and later when he was on a phone call with a psychologist, Al Carlisle, he was a prison psychologist, Ted had said, I had no plan. I had nobody helping me. I had no money. I had no nothing. So anyway, the opportunity arose and he seized seized the moment. Yep. So Bundy fled into the mountains. There, he broke into a cabin where he stayed for several days. Actually, fun fact, the correctional officers and police around the area were able to find the cabin that he stayed at, and they never found him, despite the fact that he was, like, hiding in the woods 100 feet away most of the time they were there. You didn't see his giant-ass eyebrows over there? Come no. On, guys. Come on, The guys. hedges must have been thick. Teddy, <laughs> come on now. So, it was... A few days later that Ted eventually walked back to Aspen where he stole a car that was unlocked and had keys in the ignition. Don't leave your keys in your ignition, guys. Anyway, a deputy then pulled Ted over after spotting the car weaving along the road six days after his escape. And Ted was brought back into custody. Six days. If Ted had been a better driver, I honestly think he would have done a lot more. Because that's really how he gets caught twice really that's what i have in common with fucking Speeding. ted bundy yeah <laughs> I've led led foot foot. over here. <laughs> yes damn it so one of the deputy sheriffs marine higgins was like he was cooperative in that he pretended to search for his license when we asked for it oh isn't that sweet I bless know. his heart but even the deputies said that it took a few glances because just by growing a beard and wearing glasses, Ted looked totally different. He does, though. He does. And he, oh, he can change his appearance. He has no issue gaining weight, losing weight, gaining facial hair, Bastard. losing it, changing his hair up. And he'll just look like a totally fucking different person. Why can't that be what I had in common with him? Losing weight when I want to. Well, we'll talk about more of that. Uh, a few. It was at this time, though, that five more charges were added onto Teddy Boy's tab. <laughs> oh, Ted. There was a misdemeanor level theft, felonious charges of auto theft, burglary, and two charges of escape. Those charges alone could have resulted in an additional 90 years in prison. <sighs> so, oh, in the cabin... That was less than eight miles away from Aspen the whole time. He was less than 10 miles away that entire week. Nice. Yeah. So the magical solution to our little POSKOS Houdini <laughs> was that, you guys, they learned. Now he always had to have just ankle shackles on. What? How many times can I scream that's not enough? It's not fucking enough. That's it? Just ankle shackles. And I mean, I think someone was always with him, but yeah. 
why are you letting him out like no no, no that privilege is gone dude no nope, we'll no. bring the library to you thanks i it's on would a cart now i would personally load up the books <laughs> you need and wheel my cute little ass down there give it to you spit in your face and about face and turn around okay <laughs> yep. all you right just let me know what ones need to come back and i'll stomp on your toes then okay like you don't get the opportunity right? you don't get ankle shackles you get the hole right and I know what you guys might be saying, Abby, Allie, you're overreacting. He got caught and ankle shackles. Isn't that enough? I just want to talk if you guys are saying that to us. But y'all, they caught him in a week, got him on five more charges, gave the narcissistic little turd ankle shackles. Isn't that enough? And to like, that, I say, thighs look big? what would you say if I came back and told you that he escaped again? I would say they were asking for it. Yes, and they were because he did escape again six months fucking later. Six months. During that six months of planning, he told other inmates, those inmates reported it, and he still escaped a second time. (laughs) The inmates reported it. They did. They were like, this bitch is up in the ceiling. They were like, this guy's trying to get out, and he did not bring me with him. So. They were like, he actually said nothing that could get me a lesser sentence, but he's trying to leave. And that's, like, <laughs> not fair. No. So during that six months, Ted got a hold of a hacksaw blade and cut through a, like, welded light fixture that was attached to the ceiling. How did you have access to that, Ted? Well, he then lost 15 pounds and fit through the foot 12 inch hole that was left in the ceiling and would just fucking crawl around in the ceiling my hips could never looking for ways to escape and that's how the other inmates were like yeah like this bitch is crawling around up there jesus yes and then after the other inmates reported it the warden was like all right no big deal we'll call the welder they called the welder bundy escaped before the welder got there and they were like, see, nobody's up here. They were like, God, we'll fix it. It's fine. Yeah. They were like, guys, the rats what are, are you big up there? Huh? OMG. Damn. Ted's just like taking a break. And fun fact, he was seen last at 7 p.m. on a Friday. It wasn't noticed he was gone until noon the next day. Which they're supposed to do rounds every like 15 minutes. They are. But Ted had like established this pattern the week prior where he was like, oh, I just, I'm sick. I don't want to go to breakfast. Which is how he lost the 15 pounds. Yep. And also why they didn't notice when he didn't show up to breakfast. They were like, ah, fucking Teddy's sick. I just don't understand how he must be your most, at the very least, popular, Uh famous, for lack of a better way of putting that, that everyone's talking about, that, that you would think, okay, he's escaped once, We know how dangerous he is or has the potential to be given the charges. He's not guilty. That you would watch him like a hawk. I sure as shit would. And the other piece of this is like, Ted isn't huge. He's not super famous at this point, but certainly geographically he is known. Like, he's not making like international headlines at this point. Right. But he's on his way to. And ultimately... Even if they only had him for a fraction of the murders, that's still several. Yes. And a successful escape for multiple days. That's huge. That uh, that alarm bell should be... Like, they should be nearly deaf with how loud those alarm yes. bells should be going off. And they're like, do-do-do. And they're like, 
shackles on his ankles. Yay! Like pin his knees together so he can't make the landing this time. Damn. (laughs) Literally. So I will say, though, I strongly believe this in my core. Not today's Colorado Department of Corrections, but in 1978, Colorado's Department of Corrections absolutely have all of the victims at FSU on their head. That is on them. Yeah, you let him walk out. Yeah. And you knew that he was planning an escape, not for nothing, but you had knowledge before he did it from other people. Now, granted, not always the most honest population. I will give you that. However. But multiple. But multiple people saying that and they don't have anything to lose. No. So Ted was crawling above, right? He said he was like. Slurping around. Slurping around. You pop out the light, right? Pop it to the side. You get mm-hmm. your little skinny ass little man hips up in there. Damn him. And you car- like crawl around to find a place. And he's in between the ceiling and the roof. So like he's got the entire upper floor of whatever's going on here at yeah. his disposal. So he kind of crawls around and he finds this jailer's apartment. I tried to find an accurate way to describe what a jailer is, but I think it's literally like an RA for the jail. <laughs> but, um, Just probably one of the COs. Yeah, who lived on site. Yep. So Ted was then able to overhear when this jailer and his little date were like, oh my gosh, we're going to go to the movies. Oh. And Ted was like, all right, this is it. This is the place. And Ted said that he contemplated for half an hour in the ceilings. So he wasn't out of the building for at least half an hour. So Oh, so he didn't make a run for it as soon as right. he got up there. Because he got up and he was like, well, I went back and forth with myself. Like, is this a setup? Because they're saying audibly out loud they're going to leave. And he's like, maybe I get down there and I get shot. Like the second my legs drop. Because he thinks they're on to him and they're not. Right. And he gave, imagine this, he gave them too much credit. He did. And he was like... And then another part of me was like, well, maybe it's just the opportunity of a lifetime. So I took it. He literally dropped down into a linen closet. No joke. Of this jailer's apartment, put on civilian clothes and walked out the front fucking door. When life gives you a closet. You're going to put on their clothes. And you put on the clothes and you walk the fuck out the front door. Yep. And you tip your hat to the lady at the front desk who doesn't recognize you 15 pounds later. Oh, jeez. So... This was the second. It was the second time he escaped from the Colorado Department of Corrections. Shame on them. Truly. And within like an hour, Ted found a motorcyclist. It was beautiful and snowy, according to him, but whatever. He found a motorcyclist, caught a ride to Denver. Could you imagine picking up Ted fucking Bundy on, on the your back motorcycle of your in the snow? That's a fever dream. That's a Dayquil that drunk. Did, that, like, did, that didn't happen. <laughs> no. What were you smoking? Seriously. Goddamn. So he picks up Ted, drives him to Denver. Ted then flies from Denver to Chicago, where he then makes his way down to Florida. He was in your neck of the woods. I know. Sure was. Don't you know? Oh, don't you know about that? Hmm? <laughs> so... On December 30th, 1978, Ted Bundy escaped from prison for a second time. Unreal. We once again are meeting Ted in a place that he doesn't like to be. Out of control. 
Sure, Ted was able to escape prison, flee Colorado, travel across the country to Florida, and have a few gin and tonics, get warm, and not worry that anyone was really on his tail. But, meanwhile, the families of his victims just had an empty seat for the holidays. Funerals. And, oh, did he escape again? I'm so, I, I'm so sorry, you guys. We just didn't care enough to actually keep a good eye on him. And we also probably didn't alert the families that like, hey, maybe he's coming for you next because Happy New Year. they don't know fucking thing about him. No. And victim witness advocacy was certainly not prevalent. Oh, the way it was it in now. his infancy at that point. Right. We've covered cases about that where they weren't even told. Yeah. And so Ted's like, ugh, rip, rip me. My life is so hard. Poor now me. I'm in Florida. What am I going to do? And so he pretty much supported himself for a few weeks on theft alone. That's it. So Ted was going under the pseudonym of Chris Hagen. Why? That's such a bad name to pick. Poor Chris Hagen. Sorry, IRL. Chris. I'm sorry, but it's true. Damn it. If you could choose it yourself, I'd do something cool. Like, uh, fucking like, what's his name from Transformers? <laughs> Shia LaBeouf? <laughs> Is that no. what you mean? <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, what is it optimus prime yeah like that'd be funny that'd be a good name if you could pick one but he decided to go by chris hagan well chris hagan ted bundy the syllables yeah. match up yeah it's true and if he's walking around with that still that stupid ass terrible british accent then at this point my name's chris <laughs> it's a bit poopy in it <laughs> it's fucked up isn't it bro but so ted chris is now 30 years old so Ted he Chris, sticks Chris out like a sore fucking thumb at college campuses. But if we remember, that's his favorite fucking hunting grounds. It's like Jerry Brudos. He loves them. They were like, who's he the guy them. who's not a professor, who's not a fucking student, who's, who's hanging around yeah. in his 30s. What you doing? Got no fucking business being here. So Ted was just hanging, stalking, <laughs> being, you know. Stalking, hanging, eating, you know. in the huge <laughs> Stealing. <laughs> Theftin. Mr. Steal Yo Girl. Oh, <laughs> that was not a dad joke. No, that was just a bad joke. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so Ted was in Tallahassee, Florida on January 15th, 1978, when he entered the Chi Omega house that he had been stalking on Florida State University. And this is 16 days that he's been missing. Yep. And he is across the country. Yep. In Florida. Correct. And we're outside a sorority house. With enough time to stalk and find a sorority house that had an, a faulty lock on the back door. And canvas it, encase it. Yep. And he was into voyeurism. So, you know, he was like... Watching. Hide your kids. Hide your <laughs> wife. <laughs> yes. Literally. Coming in your windows. They're snatching your kids up. Hide them. <laughs> so, Ted walked through an open door in the Chi Omega house. God through the back damn. door. He had a heavy oak log in hand because the girls either had like a wood stove or a fireplace that they kept a bunch of burning wood next to. So he used one of those as his weapon. Oh, okay. So he just, he took what was available to him. He didn't go there with this. Right. Okay. Case with a weapon. Oh, God. First, Ted entered Margaret Bowman's room. Margaret was alone that weekend. Her roommate was gone. I think she was either visiting family or on a date, but she was not in the room. So Margaret was alone when Ted attacked, bludgeoned, and then strangled Margaret. Oh, God. Margaret had been on a blind date that night, and she was 
giddy talking to her roommates about it before she went to bed. Oh, no. She went to bed at 2.30, which means she was murdered not even 45 minutes after she went to sleep. Margaret was found with a nylon stocking around her head pulled so tight it nearly tore into two. Her skull was so smashed it was impossible to tell the injuries apart. Oh. After Margaret, Ted went to the next room where Lisa Levy was sleeping. Or Levy, I'm not really sure how to Mm. pronounce it, but Lisa L-E-V-Y. Lisa was a very good student and so honored to be in Chi Omega. There are a few reports of her teaching line dancing to other sorority sisters. And that night she'd gone out with a friend to a disco at 10. But she left like a half hour later because she was exhausted from working all day. Lisa went home and fell right into bed where she had been sleeping soundly since like 10, 30, 11 o'clock. So she was dead asleep, which means she didn't wake up when Margaret was bludgeoned and attacked. And I wonder how much of that made a noise. Yeah. If you think that if you're... If you were attacked while you're sleeping and say there's one pretty decent blow to your head first. Yeah. How much are you fighting back? How well, much are you able to? Or are right. you just knocked at this point? Are you now knocked unconscious? And so now the rest is just whatever noise he makes, but not a struggle. Right. Not you fighting back, which is just awful. It has to be the loudest silence you've ever heard. Oh. So Ted then entered Lisa's room where he bludgeoned her which knocked her out with the blunt force alone. At least that's what the coroner reports believe. I'm crossing my fingers for that, though, because when Lisa was found, she was found dead with her left collarbone broken. She had been strangled. She had been raped with her right nipple nearly entirely bitten off. Oh, my God. More than that, she had a hairspray bottle shoved into her vagina and a double bite mark on her left butt cheek. Oh, Ted then somehow still had fucking energy after this and went into another room. Oh. Ted entered into Kathy Kleiner and Karen Chandler's room. According to Kathy, she heard him come into their room and she saw a dark figure standing next to her. She remembered seeing him with his arm up and then suddenly it came down with a log and bludgeoned her. She was trying to scream and felt something sticky on her face, which was blood, but she didn't know it at the time. Oh, she's just in shock. During all of this, her roommate Karen woke up and Ted attacked her. He broke Karen's arm. He broke her jaw. And when Kathy turned, she saw blood on the wall, all over the wall, and all over her brand new comforter that she had just gotten with her mom. And it was all over her sheets and her pillow. Ted only ran out of the house because while he was attacking Kathy and Karen, another sorority sister got home and the lights in the driveway spooked him. Kathy wow, says that saved their lives. She is convinced she would be dead if her roommate didn't get home at that exact at that time. exact moment. Wow. Ted wasn't done for the night, but before we follow him, I do just want to finish up on our little Chi Omega sisters. After the attack, one of the sorority sisters saw Karen bloody in the hallway, called nine one one. Kathy, one of the only two survivors out of the four that he attacked, said in her memoir, "A light in the dark, surviving more than Ted Bundy." That when 911 got there, she didn't yet know that both of her jaw joints were broken and disconnected from her cheek. Oh. Her chin was so badly smashed that it was shattered and her cheek had actually been ripped open as though she had been hit by a bullet. But it was actually just one of the joints having been entirely torn off of her upper skull. I can't even imagine. And hopefully 
she didn't feel that initially because of the shock of what had happened. Ideally, and hopefully adrenaline helped with some of that too. But Until she, she had, could get to the hospital and get pain medication. Uh, fucking fingers crossed. But she didn't even know that her other two friends were dead. No. Oh. And as a side note here, Kathy Kleiner has actually been very vocal about her experience. Something that just breaks my heart is that the reason she was in Chi Omega was her mother was super protective of her. Kathy as a kid, like sixth grade, had lupus and like almost died to it. She had to have chemo for a year. She had to be homeschooled the year after that to oh, like wow. prevent injury or anything. Kathy Kleiner has an amazing life story. But because of that, her mom was so protective that her mom convinced Kathy to join Chi Omega because she was like, it's going to be safer. There's a house mother. There's locks on all the doors. Yeah, you guys all look out for each other. It's a little family. Right. And ideally, that's great if the lock on the back door isn't broken and Ted fucking Bundy isn't stalking you. Right. right? Oh, Yeah, it just hurts my heart. Like, her new little bedding, and then she has this cute little roommate who's got, like, all of her plants in the little macrame holders with all of, like, the little rope knots. Yeah. And it, that's, like, what my room looks like. And I feel like if they didn't have each other there, the yeah. other one would have been dead. Oh, 100%. Had they not been roommates or had they one of them not been home, then the other one definitely. Well, and something that does make me giggle a little bit is that there was like a chest in between their beds. So I don't know if it was like just a big hunk and chest or if it was just like a big kind of table for their nightstands. Mm -hmm. But apparently Ted kept tripping over it, going back and forth. Thank God. Right? So I I don't know. And also Kathy Kleiner, her life is just wild. The book, the memoir that she wrote is A Light in the Dark Surviving More Than Ted Bundy. The name comes from the fact that this is like my synopsis sentence. Mm-hmm. Kathy not only survived our KOS POS sack of shit over here, mm -hmm. but also her childhood battle with lupus, an armed bank robbery when she worked as a bank teller after college, and breast cancer and Hurricane Katrina. You know those people that get dealt every shit hand yeah. and they come out on top because they're just so strong? That's Kathy. Oh. Ollie's getting in on it. He's like, yeah. I don't know if you guys can hear Oliver, but he is telling stories that he wants us to hear. I think he <laughs> just agrees. I think he agrees yeah. that she is a badass bitch. It sounds like it's more than worth the read. But yeah. When campus police got there, Ray Crew, the campo officer responding, said that Kathy's jaw was literally hanging off one side when he first saw her. Oh, and what a scene. Yeah. Ray was tasked with looking around the apartment, and because Kathy and Karen were the only two survivors of the four attacked, when he looked into Margaret Bowman's room, he just saw a giant spray of blood up the wall and, like, shut the door so that the other girls wouldn't see it. Wow. Because it's like a house full of them. Yeah. Um, I can't even imagine waking up and being like, oh, my God, you're dead. I was downstairs. So this happened with more than just the four of them yes. in the house. Yeah. There's just, plenty of other bedrooms. He would have, I'm certain, happily kept going door to door had that other sorority sister not shown up. And it makes you wonder why he started where he was. Mm-hmm. All, you know, all of these questions, why the other ones were safe, why he didn't start there. Right. Did he think that there was only one person per room and 
got surprised these two got him you know caught him off guard i kind of doubt it just based off of like the stalking and casing but no i totally agree and like is there a more sinister reason that he started somewhere was he saving someone for last like i don't understand that piece but ted was not done for the night because down the street a ways ted had been slipping in and out of the shadows until he made his way four or five blocks over to cheryl thomas's residence cheryl was a 21 year old dance student at fsu that ted had been stalking as well you know just for the shits and gigs of it i guess cheryl was shy beautiful and of course had long straight hair parted in the middle Cheryl that night actually had a date and she stayed late over at his house having like a little tea and then she came mm. back and she had a new kitten. So she got back at like 1.30 a.m. She turned on the TV, which allegedly her neighbors jokingly were like, turn it down. But I've lived in a college dorm and at 1.30 on a Sunday night. I don't think it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But she got herself a snack. She fed the kitty and then she turned off the TV to go to bed and waited for the little kitten to follow her. And then somewhere in the middle of the night, she said she woke up and she thought that it was just the kitten like on the windowsill or something. So that neighbor, Debbie Ciccarelli or Ciccarelli, it's C-I-C-C-A-R-E-L-L-I. I don't know. But she was actually Cheryl's neighbor. So she lived on the other side. It sounds like it might have been a duplex, but like at, I think they were each other's only neighbors. Okay, but a shared wall. Right. And so Debbie woke up and she said that she was woken up to very loud pounding. It was just a real loud banging sound. We could hear Cheryl moaning and whimpering. So she calls Cheryl and Debbie says we could hear the phone ringing on the other side because the wall was so thin, but she wasn't answering the phone. Debbie then called the police and when officers arrived, they found Cheryl on the floor, bloody and beaten. What a good neighbor, though. Yeah. To wake up and be like, that, uh-uh, 911. <laughs> Some people would be like, they're so loud, they're always partying, they won't stop. Yeah, especially in college. Mm-hmm. So, from ABC, Cheryl told ABC that she had learned Ted had crawled through the window in her kitchen, which was beside her bedroom. Oh. He had worn a hose over his face that had eye holes cut out and a knot tied up top. He pulled off the pantyhose and dropped them on the floor. If Debbie had not called and wasn't there that night, Cheryl would absolutely be dead. That is so haunting. Cheryl said that a few days later, she woke up in a hospital with her parents nearby. She said that she had no idea what happened to her. This is just like one of his first victims. Yeah. The police really wanted Cheryl to be able to identify who had attacked her because it would help tremendously. I mean, obviously, like there was the whole Chi Omega thing that same night. And Cheryl said she just felt so bad and guilty about not being able to remember. But Cheryl lost hearing in one of her ears. She lost many teeth. Ted broke her jaw and severed a nerve that led straight to one of her ears. So that also means that she's had considerable balance problems ever since. Wow. Initially, the police had a really hard time with this. They were given Ted's name, of course, but at that time, they just didn't really think it fit his M.O. Because all they had known about him was that he abducted women into his cars. They saw someone who was cunning, calculated, public to private situations, but this was frenzied, chaotic in someone else's home. 
So they just didn't think it could be him. And they were like, yeah, he might have escaped if that was Colorado. Yeah. And also on the other side of the country. Right. We were like, that might, it's probably a three stretch. weeks. Right. You know what I mean? Like he's probably laying low or halfway to Mexico, but not in Florida, still attacking people. And if Ted Bundy right. were smart, truthfully, he would have just got the fuck out of here. Yep. Anyone in the 70s who had an issue literally could have hopped a plane and been gone. It's just, it's almost like he had a shot and he chose not to take it. Well, we'll see later too. He could have gotten out of the death penalty and he didn't. Hmm. So I think a lot of this is ego-based. I think he wanted to get out of their hands and keep doing it. I don't think he wanted to get out of their hands and escape. Just to make a point. Yeah. Ugh. So Ted did get away for a few more weeks and attacked who we believe to be his last victim on February 9th, 1978. Hmm. This one will hurt. So please proceed with caution. Kimberly Leach was a beautiful 12-year-old girl. She had dark hair parted in the middle, and she was five foot and barely 100 pounds soaking wet. Kim was in the seventh grade and was ecstatic that she had just gotten runner-up as the Valentine's Day queen for her first ever dance. She just got her first boyfriend. And... I mean, that's just the cutest fucking sentence I could ever say. Runner up for Valentine's Day Queen. Come on. And her first little boyfriend? No. Like, he doesn't even have cooties. Are you sure? And she's like, "Mm, he plays sports and we don't talk because I'm 12. And that's really cute. Yeah. Oh. Kim was shy. She never skipped class. But on February 9th, a dreary gray Thursday, Kim's friend Lisa Little waited to meet up with her to walk to class like they did every day. Only that day, Kim never showed up at their meeting spot. Immediately, people were notified. Like, Lisa was like, this is not like my friend Kim. And everybody who knew Kim knew that she did not skip class. She didn't just leave school. There was something wrong. And not when her boyfriend's there. No, little cutie. He probably plays basketball and has, like, long blonde hair that's floppy and, like, under a beanie or something, you know? Yeah, and her mom will drive them to the mall if his mom will pick them up. Yeah, and they can go to the movies, but only in a group date. Yeah. That just, so, that's everything that she should have been doing at that age. Yep, she was perfect. And yet she was just plucked from that and put in hell. A firefighter had reported seeing a man walking across the school's campus and holding a young girl by the arm. At school? The firefighter who was coming home had seen the man and the 12-year-old walking toward a white van parked in the middle of the street. Many witnesses that day remember seeing a little girl with an angry man, and he simply looked like a father who'd been called to school to take a naughty child home, you know? But they also remembered the girl was crying, and no one thought anything of it. I mean, it looked like a very normal scene. You know, a full-grown man. He's in his 30s. Yeah, very well could have been hit her dad. Right. And no, you know, no one thought anything of it. The school even. The school called her house like later that day, but nothing was immediately called in. Just like everybody was reported. And then, well, she's not back by lunch, so I guess we'll call home. And it might not have been lunch. I'm just kind of making that up. But like. There was a little period of time. A few people saw her crying, walking with a man to a white Dodge van. 
and then nothing. Rudy Benenbaugh, one of Kim's friends, said, There's a void that will always remain. The world missed out on a great soul. And two months later, in April, Kim's body was found. And that is an overstatement because her bare bones were found in a pig pen. Pig pen. There was assault. There was evidence of sexual assault, but there was no evidence of head trauma. The coroner believes she died in the middle of intercourse. Oh. Oh, no. Yeah. So, not even a week later, on February 15th, Ted was finally apprehended for the last fucking time. So he's killed three more people. Yes. And he's attacked a total of six? Yes. In four weeks. Two different days. Wow. This fucker stole another Volkswagen Beetle, though. What is... I mean, this I understand orange. brand loyalty, but... <laughs> God damn. Yeah, he stole an orange one this time. And there are different reports as to how some articles say that he was creeping on a house and was spotted. The one I believe is that he was speeding in traffic and got pulled over. Mostly I believe that one because it was in the FBI files that I read. But I don't know. You'd I guess think both you'd are be possible. 10 and 2. Yep. Like not even 5 over. No, and this is what I mean. This is the second time he's been caught for a driving related offense. If he was just a better fucking driver. Yeah, these are the things that could have made the difference. For, I mean, very Thank grateful God. that it did it. Yeah. But. So once apprehended, investigators looked inside the car and they found a bunch of shit, as you do. They found credit cards with charges that included gasoline right near Kim's school. That was delivered to a white Dodge van with a license plate that matched one given by an eyewitness. Further, The charges on the credit card showed a night's stay and food at a Holiday Inn less than three miles from Kim's middle school. Even more damning to Ted's case, another vehicle was linked to him, and that was the white Dodge van. Inside, forensic experts found two large spots of human blood that came back as a match to Kim, as well as fiber traces that matched to her little purse. Which, by the way, is why she was not in class when Ted grabbed her. She went to PE and realized she left her purse in her last class and asked if she can go get it. Oh, I am blown away that he had the gall to go onto school property. During the fucking school day. Which is also like, how did that even happen? Because now schools have a lot more security. Thank goodness. And you can't just get on the ground or you shouldn't be able to i mean obviously there's always yeah. a loophole and honestly if there were if there was a loophole ted bundy probably would have found it but it makes you wonder if he had chosen her in advance or if she was just a victim of opportunity it sounds more like a victim of opportunity i mean she does break his victim type a little bit and there are also reports of him trying to take another girl earlier and failing So I think at this point it was any victim. And Kim got the shit end of that stick. Mm. 
Also inside that van, expert analysis of soil and leaves found outside and inside the van suggested that they came from a moist river bottom land, the same kind found around the river that her body was found at. Okay. So putting him there to right. leave her. And her body was found in a pig pen. So she was not drowned, but it was at like a park that I think circled a river or something like that. Okay. So there was a body of water nearby. And a pig pen? Yes. So weird. Very weird. <laughs> but hey, pigs eat anything, right? They do. So Ted was then behind bars, bless up, in Pensacola, Florida. The Pensacola police detective, Norman Chapman, which is a fun name to say. Normie. He said to Bundy, Ted, if you tell me where the body of Kimberly Leach is, I'll go and get it and let the parents know that the child is dead. Mm-hmm. That seems pretty point blank. Mm-hmm. And Ted said, I can't do that because the site is too horrible to look at. Uh, Go fuck yourself. Yeah. And then they found it. Okay. So on April 7th, when Kim's remains were found, she was discovered inside the hog pen. A detective found her primarily decomposed body. It was mostly bones at this point, but there was a little bit left. I don't know that it was an active farming situation where there were pigs there Mm. there might have been or it could have just been wild animals Mm. which is disgusting to say but her remains were primarily nude other than a pullover jumper her blue jeans and other items of clothing were piled up beside her body the body was in an advanced state of decomposition and she was only identified through dental records oh She had suffered, quote unquote, homicidal violence about the neck region. I hate when they can't just spell it out. I mean, as awful as it is, but there were so many things back then that we danced around because we didn't want to say it. And it was like, sometimes you got to be specific, though. So trigger warning, because I did get the coroner's report on this and I found a little more information. Okay, go ahead. It's terrible. But the coroner's report indicates that Ted had bitten her on one of her butt cheeks. That seems to be one of his faves. And the coroner stated that he believed that Kim died during intercourse. We can only imagine what this 12-year-old must have gone through. But the only other thing that we know is that Ted had purchased a knife the day before and used that knife to slit her throat. Okay. And that's... Presumably how she fully died. So that's fucked. And it's weird because it seems like up until this point, he's used what's around him or just used his fist kind of or something. This was like using a sharp object was not part of his kit, if you will. No. And I, you know, I struggled to like blanket statement say no because he did have some supplies. But the supplies that he used were casts. They were slings, crutches, slings, crutches handcuffs, handcuffs. They were things that rope. were very physical and hands on. And not that a knife isn't, but he didn't really prep like that. The only real sharp, quote unquote, that he would have had was a, a hacksaw. And he used that and we'll find out later. But he used that to take home souvenirs. 
Yeah, post-mortem. Post-mortem, yes. But during the act, it was almost like he wanted to be fully responsible. Yes, he really enjoyed the life in his hands. He didn't want to be able to say, well, I shot him and the bullet killed him. Right. I did that. I did that. Yeah. Fucker. So, bless up that Ted was actually fucking apprehended. But remember... Ted is both antisocial and has narcissistic personality disorder at the very least. Yes. Um, if not plenty of other diagnoses. So for him, limelight was almost as good as killing. Sure, he didn't get the the power and control surge of like hedonistic pleasure or some shit. But whatever he said did allow him to control the narrative to a degree. Correct. And he loved that people needed to know what was up with Ted Bundy. He does strike me as the kind of kid who would do something wrong just so like the teacher would scold him and all the other kids would snicker and he'd be like, haha, like I have 30 people that liked me. Ugh. So it can't all be put on Ted, though, at least as far as the media goes. This is one of the first cases to truly be televised as a court case. And Ted was notorious prior to the court hearings. There is something so almost fantastical like mythical about a man who is just a normal man who can do these heinous horrendous things get caught win the hearts of everybody for being america's fucking sweetheart and then escape twice and do it again and still have the same dimple on the right side of his fucking face not only that but the fact that there were people picketing to be like it wasn't him we believe him because no one could handle no one could grasp the possibility that somebody who wasn't didn't look like a ghoul waiting in the alleyway was capable of such evil yes you'd think you'd have to look evil to be evil well and this is also the beginning of 24 7 news Mm -hmm. thanks anchorman but like in the 70s this is the perfect storm of not enough evidence antiquated policing the beginning of like information overload right and wow if you put it out there it sells yes and now we have something that bleeds that leads and it's by a handsome man who seems to be okay superficially Mm-hmm. so i can't blame all of that on ted there are plenty of media and news reporters that added to this frenzy they really did but Literally, a New York Times article that summer posted an article that was titled All-American Boy on Trial about Ted Bundy. That didn't age well. No, it sure fucking didn't. Especially since Ted had no lawyers. This was particularly fascinating for America. He's clean cut. Specifically, someone that you'd expect to be good. A law student. And he's representing himself for some of the most notorious crimes and murders this country has seen in history. And at that time, that's fucking groundbreaking. We're 50 years later, and it's still some of the most heinous murders that we've seen. And you think on the flip of it, not that they're really alike that much, but the Brian Kohlberger stuff with the Idaho Four, and you have... A, r- a group of college students that are attacked in one night. Not every roommate is harmed. Right. Well, in the 70s, a serial killer fucking central. Well, I just think it's funny. Not funny, but 
there's a connect there where 24-hour news, everyone's watching it, people are cued in. You know, yep. as, so- as soon as there is a headline with his name in it, it draws people everybody know. in the same way. And not that there's this fight that he's innocent maybe as much as Ted Bundy had, but there's a lot of people that are in his corner. Yeah. It's just, it's interesting to see how it captivating it is and then polarizing and then, gla- like, I shit you not, in less than five years, there will be how many Hulu specials on it, how yep. many Netflix things, there'll be a made-for-TV movie. The, w- with whatever happens with the trial, it will be blown up the way that Ted Bundy has been. Yes. And it's because we find these things so, like, what the hell? He looked so normal. Yeah. He was a college student. He was in his master's program. He was doing this. He was a law student. Like, fill in the blank. Yeah. You just don't think it's possible. And it literally doesn't help that anyone who wasn't in the criminal justice system was pretty much saying, "Mm, are you sure? The New York Times article that I talked about the one that's titled All-American Boy on Trial, here's just a fun little snippet of it for you. From the beginning, there was a basic contradiction in the strange case of Ted Bundy. From the moment he stepped into the courtroom in Utah three years ago to answer a charge of kidnapping, those who saw him for the first time agreed with those who had known him for all of his 28 years. There must have been some terrible mistake. Here was a young man who represented the best in America, not its worst. Here was the terrific-looking man who... That's bold. With... I know, right? (laughs) Sorry. With light brown hair. Some say that Ted is the most prolific mass murderer in American history. Bundy claims he is the tragic victim of a tangling web of circumstances. Of course he does. They called him Kennedy-esque. They said he had a lean, all-American face and a bright smile, and he walked almost jauntily before the judge. And if you're confused as to why this man is given a reputation that doesn't automatically make someone want to vomit, me too. Mm -hmm. Me fucking too. He raped, assaulted, while she was alive, a 12-year-old girl, and murdered her in the middle of that, and left her in a fucking pig pen. And these people are calling him Kennedy-esque. Well, well... Uh, These people they are might be him. on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, yes. but they're calling him the all-American, like they're, what you, basically what you should strive to be. What's so bad about him? Everyone thinks there's a mistake. Fuck that, dude. Fuck that. <clears throat> he joked with local newsmen that eight weeks he had been held in Salt Lake City before being released on bail. And the only thing he would joke about is that when he became a lawyer, he wanted to, quote unquote, start with the bail bond system. (laughs) Isn't he a stitch? He was warm and friendly and not even a little defensive. It's what he wanted you to think. During his trial, Ted was a hell of a guy. Like I said, he loved the limelight. And this is one of the first like TV televised reported on courtroom hearings where you could see it and be in it as it was happening he loved the limelight he loved giving interviews and he even loved doing those little like you know the the moments in the office where jim like looks at the camera like really Mm -hmm. he does shit like that all the time he'll just like make a face for the sake of the people looking on and it worked and it worked and the ego of it all is giving such narcissistic personality disorder where 
you know, he can't even rationalize the fact that by being so blazing and nonchalant and flippant, he's actively torturing the families of the girls he did this to. Yeah, which is also an appeal to him. Right. And I was going to say, he might have known and he probably would have thought that made it more fun. But for people looking in and thinking he's a good kid, like how can you how can you stomach the idea that even even in a unicorn shitting rainbow world, this man is not guilty that you can say, oh, yeah, no, that's respectful to the families of the 36 murdered women that we're talking about. Yep. No. So many people just don't care about respecting the families, though. And that's the issue is that it if it makes the money, it doesn't matter. I know. But what the full on fuck? I know. What is that? I know. So Ted's second trial took place June 25th, 1979 for the Florida State University murders. Big evidence in this trial included the bite marks on Lisa Levy's body Mm-mm. or her booty, which they used bite mark evidence to help convict. Good. One of the sorority sisters, Nita Neary, testified after going through a hypnotic therapy session that was used in an argument of Ted's guilt, basically. Wow. Okay. And Ted was eventually charged with murder and sentenced to death. We love to see it. Ted did appeal because, of course, he fucking did. Yep. The judge that confirmed the decision of the trial court, so he said, tough luck, Teddy boy, fuck Mm -hmm. you, um, said that hypnosis is a highly risky situation, especially when there's post-hypnotic testimony. However, because Nita changed nothing in her description or testimony before versus after the hypnotic therapy session, he was going to allow it because it wouldn't have changed the facts of the case. Yeah, exactly. What a weak point to hang your hat on, Ted. Yep. Bundy also said that he was failed because the court just did like a bad job controlling pretrial media. And I'm like, that fucking helped you, bro. You soaked that in. You soaked that up. You lived in that glory and everybody made you look better than you are. So how that's a disadvantage to your trial, I don't know. I wouldn't be arguing to change that. But okay, bless up. His appeal was not granted. (laughs) Good. Ted's next court date was in February of 1980. He was once again found guilty. But don't worry. That good old NPD reared its ugly head once again. (laughs) Because in this trial. So he's his own lawyer, right? So he can like cross-examine witnesses. He'd like ask himself questions and change his voice and answer them. Could you imagine being cross-examined by the man that attacked you? No. Of... Well, did the defendant do this? And and he pushes on you and he leans on you and he can like switch that look in his eyes mm-hmm. into the same look you saw when he was trying to kill you. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine the trauma? No. And Carol Durant did it fucking first. Not in this trial, just in general. So bless up Carol Durant. She's like a hero. <laughs> oh, I want to give her just so many hugs. I know. And her hair's beautiful. Can we talk? We'll post a photo. Her hair's fucking beautiful. They were all beautiful. They are all beautiful, but I need to know what rollers she used. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I'm i hung up on it. Every time I see a photo of Carol Durant, I'm like, tell me your secrets. <laughs> oh. But during this trial, right, where he is his own attorney, he's like asking questions. He's cross-examining. He pulled up a character witness for himself. You're allowed to do this. And the character witness that he pulled up. (laughs) No. Uh, (laughs) She would have been like, that loser, he wasn't going nowhere. I broke up with him. (laughs) 
Um, no, who he did pull up was Carol Boone. Okay. And you might be thinking, who is Carol Boone? We haven't I talked about her. exactly thinking, who is Carol Boone? We haven't talked about her. Well, Carol Boone was one of Ted's many supporters, people who thought that there's no way Teddy Boy could have done this. Okay. There's some connect with like a public defender. I don't know if she was just a volunteer or if they knew each other from law school and she was in support of his defense. But they had met around these circumstances. And she, she was smitten. Carol would talk to press about Ted and Carol would talk to pretty much anyone she could to further his agenda. Damn it, Carol. Right? Um, so he, of course, pulls her up as a character witness. He asked her, you know, to describe him and she called him kind and warm and patient. And Carol also said, you know, I've never seen anything in Ted that indicates any destructiveness towards any other people. He's a large part of my life. He is vital to me. Wow. She's going to eat those words. And then in case you were wondering, mid-trial, Ted proposed to Carol. (laughs) And she said yes. What? Televised. On stand. Shut your mouth. In court fucking records. I did not know this. Yes. Proposed to her. She said yes. They got married there. He got married in the middle of his own fucking murder trial. Ma'am. Narcissistic personality. Who? We know her. We know her. Holy Sorry. shit. Sorry that I killed your kid, but I love this woman. At what point do you think she was sitting there hearing the other evidence and was like, oh shit, I didn't know about that part. Oh, that comes uh, in 1986, so six years later. She's like, oh shit, the dental records. Oh, oh well. Oh, it does look an awful lot like you, you, d- you, you know, know you did pick me up in that car once. Damn it. I do recall... The door not having a handle. Um, fuck. Fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Fuck shit, fuck shit, fuck. <laughs> yeah, literally. Like, at what point could you imagine she's denying, 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 denying? Yep. And then it clicks and it's like, oh, oh shit. Sh- okay. Oh, shit. I said yes. Okay. I married him. Well, that's my on husband. TV. Also, where's his girlfriend? Liz? Yeah, where's Liz? They broke up in 1974. We'll talk about it. Okay. Because I'm like, wait, you're getting married? Yep. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. She's like, you missed the baptism and then you do what? What? <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> oh, poor Liz. Yeah. So we, I will touch briefly on this. They did break up in 1974. Actually, it was because Liz had gotten sober and she had really started to like take a look at herself and her life. And she was like, you know what? I have to report him. He looks too much like the drawings. There's too many coincidences. I don't know where he was any of the days that these are. Wow. And she did it. And she had distanced herself before then, but they did break up in 1974, which is why she hasn't been a part of the story since the murder started, really. Wow. But I just think, I just think that's so fucking marrying someone in the middle of your own murder trial where you're already on death row because he was already sentenced to death in his second trial i don't have words for that also in case you were wondering the two did eventually have a child together i did know about this which means a correctional officer somewhere she's the one Oh. Took a little smoke break. Is that when in the movie we saw Zac Efron's ass? Yeah. Okay. I do remember that. 
Um, I also remember Zach Efron's ass. Hey. Um, what a but yeah. stick. No, so someone, so someone was like, <laughs> a lot to have get a little bit of humping in. A I, little. Uh, He's had enough. Okay. He's had enough humping time. He. Neuter him. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, but they did have a beautiful baby girl named Rose Bundy, who I will absolutely not talk about. That poor kid. She deserves a full fucking life outside of this shit. So I'm not bringing her into this. Oh, God. But hey, classic Abby Vent Corner. I want to talk a little bit about bite mark evidence. Okay. Because as your local CJ girly, I am not going to let this opportunity pass me by when there is a duty to tell you about how terrible pattern matching evidence is. Bite mark evidence falls into this. This is not great evidence collecting. It is great help, but it is not something to rest an entire case on. First and foremost, anything pattern matching should be taken with a grain of salt. Of course, it's helpful, but like when we talk about hair analysis or something like that, if it's not forensically studied in a lab, so not someone who's going through and looking at substances you've taken or like testing those elements mm-hmm. chemistry-wise of your hair. If it's just like, well, Abby was obviously the perpetrator because her red hair was found here. That That's not solid evidence. That's mm-hmm. not something to rest a case on. Bite mark evidence is a lot like this in pattern matching. So when it comes to using bite mark evidence... There's no science, A, that claims that everyone has their own unique bite mark that can't be replicated in other mouths. So that's not like your fingerprint where everybody's is different. It's like, nope, this is just your mouth and how it is. Further, just food for thought, bite mark analysis is particularly unsustainable because of what we're looking at. We're looking at skin. We're not looking at someone who bit into a mold of ceramic that then hardened so we can look up at the exact match, right? Right. We're looking at bites on bodies and skin bounces back. So it's not going to hold that shape. And what we're really looking at is bruising from a bite. And bruising is that broken blood vessel under your skin, right? And so it does diffuse over time. And if you're not looking at it like the minute that it happened, you're probably not going to get a good indication of like, this tooth might have been in further than this tooth because it's going to sort of bleed into one bruise. Mm -hmm. And due to this, I think the bite evidence was helpful, but I'm glad that it also wasn't the sole evidence that convicted Ted Bundy. Because if it was today, I'd be fighting for that evidence to be removed, personally. Also, just my little addition to this vent here. Another fun fact is that when looking at a study with bite mark experts, Yes, people who claim to be experts in analyzing bite marks forensically. They were unable to determine if they were even looking at a bite mark in over half of the cases that were presented to them. If you're an expert in something and you can't even tell me if you're looking at the thing you're an expert in, there's an issue. Yes. Yes. And my last food for thought is that there are no hard rules in science, right? There are theories. There are assumptions. The goal is always to acknowledge our limitations, though. People thought the world was flat until we realized it was round. And so it's one of those where it's like the more you know, the more you know. You can't know everything the first time you go about it. Mm -hmm. And so with science, we're always learning. There's always new rules. There's always something new that we're discovering. But the criminal justice system does not work that way. And that is 
in part for good reason. Part of it is that there are expectations from criminal justice professionals, from judges, from the courts, that we as citizens know what the law is. And part of how we do that is by using other cases that we consider precedents to determine what we're going to rule in a case. Mm -hmm. So if Allie goes in and robs a store yesterday, if I go in and rob a store today, it should still be illegal. That law will be applied the same. Mm -hmm. Now, part of the issue with this, although again, it is for a good reason, and as citizens, we do deserve to understand how the law is going to be applied so we can live within it. But because we always base our judgments, at least in part, based off of other judgments that have already been made, a lot of the criminal justice system is based on what's already been done. And so I just want to add some food for thought that maybe, maybe just maybe, it might be a good idea to ask for laws that are more specific in the actual legislation and allow judges to use some more new introductory evidence in terms of science, in terms of what evidence is permissible to correct some of this. Because I do agree, use precedent, use what's happened so that we all have some semblance of uniformity. Mm -hmm. But also, let's not do the thing that's always been done just because it's always been done. That's not good rationale. Right. So I think just as food for thought, as your local CJ girly, the only people that can help motivate change are citizens. But anyway, okay, vent corner is done. So there is so much in the trials that I wish I had time to get into. (laughs) Again, all of this, like if I could, I'd literally be giving you 60 hours of Ted Bundy. But I have simmered it down to six hours, (laughs) (laughs) which even that is a lot. So I do want to talk more about Ted's time on death row. If I can suggest anything, though, go on YouTube and look up Ted Bundy trial. There's so many clips because, again, this is a televised court hearing. There are all sorts of news clips. There's all sorts of like funny little compilations (laughs) of like Ted giving angry looks in the courtroom. And I do actually I know it's funny and I'm laughing. I do suggest that you watch them because you see his face change from like charming all American boy to like, I'm literally going to eat you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but also there's video of him proposing. There's video of him cross-examining witnesses. So you can go and watch most of this. And I recommend at least looking at it. But God, there it's just the way Ted lights up when he's getting attention. It makes me nauseous. Like people be like, how are you doing, Ted? And he's like, haha, well, I'm here. But like his eyes light up. It's like, ah, attention. Ugh. You're talking to me. Well, I'm here. It's like it would be endearing if he were anybody else. Yep. Like if it were other things. But because it's him, it makes me queasy. And not for the attention, but like it's almost like childlike. Like, oh, yep. how's school? Oh, it's good. I did yep. this and this and this and this and this. and You know what I mean? Yep. Like that kind of thing. And it's like matched on anybody else in any other age or anything. Like there's a, a an element of it that could be innocent and sweet and endearing. And in him, it's just cold blooded. And with him, it's like. Oh, I'm here. Don't you think I'm a good person now? Tell me everything you like about me in alphabetical order. (laughs) Yeah, literally. But Ted was on death row for almost a decade. His last trial was in 1980. He wasn't put to death until 1989. 
So there is significant time here. And this is really when Ted starts to talk. And he doesn't just talk about what he did to his victims, but he also talks about his favorite subject himself. Mm hmm. Ted is known in this time to have spoken to many different journalists and people thought he could manipulate whether or not that was to tell his story, whether or not that was to come up with some explanation as to why, or even, I I hate to give him this, but maybe he was just trying to get introspective. I don't know. But he fucking talked. He opened that mouth. In interviews, Ted finally released some of the details of the heinous acts he did to his victims. So a little bit of trigger warning here. (laughs) Ted would decapitate some of the heads of his quote unquote special victims with that hacksaw, you know, and then he would take those heads, those souvenirs, those beautiful, beautiful women, and he would display them in his apartment. Oh, my. Mm -hmm. No, he would put makeup on them. He would do their hair. He'd play with them like dolls and then he'd fuck the heads. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, the severed heads. He would also do the same with the women's bodies at the dump sites. He would often go back and sexually assault them through multiple stages of decomposition until he was unable to do so from the elements or the animals that were out there. When I think back to our Jerry Brudos series Mm -hmm. and we broke down the stages of decomp even in the first week. Uh Uh-huh nasty beyond that i don't think my brain computes i think yeah seriously how do you do that if someone is beyond day five of decomposition where their body is bloated and excreting all of the fucking shit that's in them and you still come back and you're like "Mm -hmm, that's the stuff there is something so wrong, so sinister and evil that that really happened. And I mean, I have a weak stomach. For me, I don't know what it is, but smells get me. Yep. I can open the fridge and I'm like, oh no. It, even though it's not necessarily bad, it's just something and that can turn my stomach like instantly. Yep. I'm very, very, very sensitive to that. I can become nauseous over that. The smell alone, I probably wouldn't get within 100 feet. No. And that's not... And I, I don't mean... Because I, I think it can sound almost insensitive, and I don't mean it this way, and, and Abby doesn't either. But when we talk about these things, this isn't a slight of the victims. Your body no. is doing exactly what it ne- what it's supposed to do, what it's designed to do. We all become one with the grass again, yep. right? Think a Lion King, okay? <laughs> There's a certain order of things and nature of things that it that it's designed to be that way no human was ever designed to go back and try to um practice procreating (laughs) with a deceased person whether that's 15 minutes later whether that's 15 days later that doesn't matter but if he is revisiting the bodies and committing necrophilia to the point where the body is no longer truly a body at yeah. that point and I, we won't get into it in this episode because we've done so with jerry brudos but if you want to hear that part two of jerry brudos especially but i mean really listen to the whole thing um <laughs> i spent like 40 hours of research on it um <laughs> so that's my shameless <laughs> it plug. was very good but seriously the just the first 48 hours yeah is intense beyond that what the fuck yep 
what the fuck that's i don't have any other words and honestly like truly again none of this is a slight at any of the victims this is not anything at their character or their person or anything no this is it's nature. science and it's awful but the fucked up part is not them the fact that they died and did exactly what their bodies were intended to do when you die is not your fault no that that's perfect you actually did exactly what you needed to do the fucked up part is that ted bundy not only could fucking stomach the idea of that he could stomach doing it and not only stomach it he liked it he the, liked it a lot the fact that the the thought crossed his mind alone is you should be meeting with a professional like 18 stat like in a circular padded room that is that is reason enough for concern to think of it then you consider it yep and then, then you, you make arrangements to do so then you get there and you look at the scene and then you still decide to do so and then after the deed is done you say i'm gonna do that again yep see you tomorrow like and now again we only know antisocial personality and narcissistic personality disorders as what is most commonly agreed upon necrophilia fetishistic disorder fetishistic disorder is real and so intense but also just in general in this case what kind of delusions did he have to be going through he played with these bodies he put makeup on them he dressed them he cleaned them he did their hair he had a whole fucking thing with multiple dead bodies for many days danny rowling decapitated one of his victims set her body upright at the edge of the bed and then set her head on a bookshelf looking down at her body in horror yep because it was funny to him he played with it to make a scene like barbie this is playing with it for his own sexual gratification but to be a favorite of ted bundy's was to be the most loathed in a way because you were defiled the most yep that he would take your head home put it on his fucking i don't know mantle whatever put makeup on it continue to defile yep. your body until it got to the point where it just wasn't usable anymore like mm -hmm. mechanically wasn't usable anymore yep that is so haunting and he took photos Oh. He took a lot of photos. I wish I knew exactly where this is. I don't, I have no clue what this means. But he kept all of these photos in a utility closet by his apartment. It doesn't say in his apartment in any of the sources I saw. It says by his apartment. So I don't know whose fucking utility closet he kept these in. Oh, no. But he kept them in a closet. And then when he was asked why, Ted said, and this is a quote, <clears throat> When you work hard to do something right, you don't want to forget it. Uh, Fuck you, Ted. That's like if you learned how to paint pretty yeah. foliage <laughs> and you're like, Fuck. you're like, I love New England in September. I don't want to forget how to paint this. So I want to hold on to my paintings. Yep. That's what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, Not this. That's what you do. Things like that. You know, yep. when you're like, hey, I'm going to write down step by step how I painted that pretty leaf because I want to do it again. And I don't want to forget how to ride a bike and yep. I don't want to forget how to drive and I don't want to forget how to um, 
configure this whatever but not that ted no mm-mm, no ted not that and this is not scrapbook material no ted no put no, the stickers bad, down bad ted bad <laughs> fuck bad it's so bad do you like there's no way to sit and rationalize how bad it is without trying to laugh a little bit because you it's have to so bad because if you don't laugh you cry and that is where we come from where if you can't find humor in something you're damned i i j- i can't imagine fuck you ted when you work hard to do something right like that sentence alone he wants a medal for it. He wants a medal and he thinks that what he did was right. He perfected it in his his yes. eyes. He was like, well, when you do something right, you got to like commemorate it, bro. Fuck you. He seems like a bro kind of guy. He does. He seems like a, uh, well, actually, hun. Like- he doesn't give me hun. He gives me a little bit of well, actually. A little bit of bruh and a little bit of like his shoulders go up and down a lot when he laughs. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. he's, it's, he puts his back into it like he's forcing it. Well, cause he is. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's not genuine. Anyway, sorry. We could ping pong all, all night. <laughs> so during this. his time on death row, Ted also offered to help the FBI. So, so generous. So philanthropic of Ted, truly. Mm-hmm. It has shown up in a few sources that he was offered a deal to be pardoned from death row to tell details of where some of the bodies were and what happened. Um, He did decline it. Oh, jeez. I do believe that he declined it because he couldn't admit to the world that he did it. He still has never said publicly, this is what I did. Everything I'm getting is from like old FBI files that were released. Things that were pretty much yanked out of him by journalists and criminologists nothing that he willingly was like well yeah i did this and then that and then this but in the third person of it seems like it would have been done this way he would happily play that game where well i'm an expert so if i was a killer the killer would have probably done that he did consult with law enforcement to help them build a profile for gary ridgeway that was what i was just about to talk about actually So, again, just real quick here, though, I don't know if having taken that pardon, I mean, he didn't, but I don't know if taking that plea to be pardoned from death row would have actually saved him because he was sentenced to it three different times. So I don't know if that was the FBI saying like, okay, we'll take over all three of these cases and it's off the table. Or if it's like, well, in this case, we'd take it off, but like, you're still going to die. So I don't know that specific piece, but he did turn it down. He would not admit where the bodies were and what he did to certain people. Then the FBI had him help with Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer. And they asked Bundy to help like analyze the killer, right? They were like, Ted, um, takes takes an asshole to know an asshole. So takes one to know one. Do you know where this disgusting fucking vile fucker is? And he was like, "Hmm, well, I'm not the killer, but if I were... He told the FBI that they should return to a fresh grave from the most recent victim because the killer would almost certainly return. Yep. And he was pretty much like, yeah, you're going to have to wait till he kills again. Um, and that's how there. you're going to get him. And then you're just going to want to camp out, bring some snacks. And he was right. That yeah. is how they got him. But also a fun fact, just a little fascinating tidbit for me. 
This also inspired many scenes in movies and modern day media, including many scenes from Silence of the Lambs. Clarice. (laughs) Have you seen that? Yes. Okay, good. It's so good. My roommate and I just watched it recently and we keep going Clarice at each (laughs) other all the time. Anywho. It's an old classic. In the years that Ted was on death row, he and Carol married, had their daughter Rose, and then divorced in 1986. Okay. Carol divorced him in 1986, and I'm saying it because she deserves to have it said it was her fucking choice. I don't know. Does she? Carol can kind of get fucked in my eyes. Carol can kind of get fucked, but also there was a lot going on. She can No, she can kick rocks. I can't. (laughs) I just... Okay. It was fucking insensitive to get married in the middle of a murder trial. Okay, it was. Because whether or not he was guilty, he could have been innocent as all hell. Doesn't matter. The the gravity of the the situation, mm-hmm. the topic to make light of any of that, shame on you. In that room in the presence of those families in the midst of the conversation that needed to be had. Yeah. He drops down on one knee of steel. <laughs> And he fucking, you know what I mean? Yeah. And whether she felt pressured, I don't know. Obviously, sure shit, not her. Thank Christ. But. Time and place. That was so insensitive. And then you procreated with him. You made a person with him. You, you let, you allowed his genetics to, to, to live on. You were like, ah, yes, we need another one. Yep. Yeah. Now I'm sure Rose Bundy's a peach. Yeah. And she is not representative of her dad at all. And I'll, I'll just call him a sperm donor because he sure as shit didn't raise her. Nope. But just the fact that this woman was like, you are definitely believed by thousands of people mm-hmm. to be the one who raped, killed, tortured, assaulted, and then went back and defiled the bodies afterwards of, let's just call it 30 people right? for a round number here. For a round number that is very conservative, but agreed upon. Some of them under the age of 18, some of them 12, some 15, Mm -hmm. some 17. And you're like, nothing gets my motor running quite like you being on trial to spend the rest of your life in prison, even though you already were convicted and will be spending the rest of your life in prison. Well, and I find the appeal. I just... I will say in her defense, I'm not Mm. her, but in some of the documentaries that I watched, he was very convincing. He was to a lot of people and as many people as believed that he did all of these things, there were also that many saying, but he's a 28 year old all American boy. There must be a mistake. You could have thought he was innocent, but that doesn't mean you marry him. I agree. And I would not say yes to anyone who proposed to me while they were defending themselves in the middle of a courthouse. I'd say, get it together. Do it right. I would say we have priorities. And that ring is definitely not big enough. No. And honestly, you're going to have to get out of jail and work a little more for the right one. So And no, don't steal it, Ted. Ted. I don't want one of your... Damn it, Ted. Yeah. But you know what I mean? I don't know. Even, Even if he were innocent, still, shame on you for entertaining that. So... They got divorced in 1986. If you say so. In Ted's last interview, he talks about running into porn as a boy of 12 or 13. And it was softcore porn, but he got addicted and he needed more and more. And to that I say, fuck you. There are people that watch porn every day that do not 
rape and defile and murder and then commit necrophilia to humans. Yup. Am I the biggest fan of porn? Not particularly. Make sure it's ethically sourced. That's a really big one. But otherwise, that has nothing to fucking do with it. And if we want to say it did, despite the fact that Ted claims his entire childhood was perfect, amazing unicorns shitting rainbows, um, we know that his grandfather, Simon Cowell, had a pretty intense porn addiction and it was pretty violent porn. That was pretty well dispersed throughout the home. So if Ted saw that before he was five... Maybe there's something to be looked at there. But regardless, seeing it does not make you do it. Nope. Nope. That's all you, babe. Also, he talks about alcohol and how he drank a lot, but he says that he used alcohol to calm his inhibitions and they allowed him to go for his fantasy life. Um, You know, like liquid luck or like your good luck charm or like your alcohol before you rape and murder young women oh sorry was that too on the nose i do wonder if he was drunk every time no he drank before every every killing according to him yes according to him but i'm sure (laughs) but right but you have to wonder like was this something that he needed to be absolutely but he couldn't have been that good at it if he was absolutely shit-faced nope and also there were some things that he probably could not have done to victims that we know he did if he was that shit faced and again though as careful as he was to not get caught would probably i mean there's been a few times in my life i've been very drunk (laughs) but 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 seriously even when you think you're being quiet no you sound like a bull in a china shop yeah if you are entering a home in the dead of night creeping through windows and open doors slithering into bedrooms yeah assaulting and killing people and then able to move to the next room and do it to somebody else you were very fucking quiet yep so that doesn't much that doesn't check out to me i will say something that does check out to me and i'm gonna pull the impotence card here um whiskey dick if you will Uh uh-huh it does make sense to me that that was enough that he had some issues performing Based off of the various things that we see he assaulted women with, Karen was assaulted with part of her bed frame, not with a human male member, as was Lisa Levy with a hairspray bottle. So I think there's some tidbits here that I can pick up that say, "Mm, there might have been more going on, but I agree. I don't think he could have been hammered for every single one i think there's also an argument to be made that had there been several in one night that the turnaround yeah might have been so close in time that there wasn't a A refractory inability yep like and that's not to say that that had to be the time with all of them but who knows he could have had very consensual sex with his girlfriend yeah. And then went and killed somebody and there just wasn't enough oil in the tank. Very true. If you will. And we will, unfortunately. You know, so you, I guess if you consider it that way too, but I see what you're saying. Yeah. So I think there's just, there's a lot of clues and tidbits and there's not a lot of concrete answers. What I will say is that even if we sit here and we think, oh, poor Ted, he was addicted to porn and alcohol and he did all these things, but he... But his childhood and his grandpa, fuck that. Because even when Ted was asked right before he was going to die, 
if, you know, if he hadn't discovered porn, if he hadn't gotten addicted to that, and if that wasn't like what drove his need to murder and then commit necrophilia to women, what would his life be like? And Ted said, and this is an elongated quote. These are little quotes pulled from his answer. He says, yeah, well, it would have been far better, (laughs) not just for me. And it's, excuse me for being so self-centered here. It would have been a lot better for me and for other people. No, I don't excuse you for that. Actually, you, bro, Theodore, I don't. You mean if you hadn't discovered violent porn, you still wouldn't have given a shit about anybody else's well-being or feelings or how they're doing? Yeah, sounds right, actually. He's kind of like, it still sucks to be them because they're not me. But like, it would have made my life a lot easier and far better. I have so many things to say and no time to say it. Literally, even in his last moments, imagining a life in which he could have been better, the emphasis was still on himself. Hey there, NPD, and also the antisocial personality disorder, just coming out to show us that he truly had no depth of thought beyond himself. Nope. None. Um, this is my favorite section of today's episode. It's labeled Ding Dong, the Dick is Dead. Oh, I love that. Just hours after this interview, the next morning on January 24th, 1989, Ted Bundy was executed via electric chair at 7.06 a.m. Fry, Bundy, fry. His last words were, I'd like you to give my love to my family and my friends. Friends? Yeah. Sorry. No apology, no remorse, no sadness, no regret, no caring, just me, my reputation, and then 2,000 watts of electric current that seized his heart and muscles from working, resulting in his glorious, glorious death. This was celebrated throughout the land. Literally think munchkins, ding dong, the fucking dick is dead. Mm -hmm. Goodbye. FSU students were holding barbecues to watch it and serving Bundy burgers and electrified hot dogs. I love that so much. Louise, Ted's mom, and Vivian Winters, Susan Rancourt's mom, if you remember back to episode two, they spoke just after Ted died. Vivian actually called Louise to offer empathy. Wow. Vivian and Susan's sister, Judy, cried for Ted on the day of his execution. Judy said, you know, there's always a flip side, isn't there? There's another mother, another family, and the death penalty is controversial in our hearts. When talking about reaching out to Louise, Vivian said that in that moment, they were just two mothers grieving the loss of a child. Just one was at the hands of a horrendous serial killer and one was at the hands of the Florida State Executioner. Hmm. Louise told Vivian, well, I've said it before, and I'm glad to be able to say it directly to one of the moms. We don't know why this happened, and we feel so desperately sorry for you. We didn't want our son to do these things. We have two beautiful daughters of our own, and we know how we would feel. I am sorry. In response, Vivian said, I know you are, and we don't hold any resentment or hatred towards you or your family. Here's to hoping that Vivian Winters and Judy Zimmerman are the women of the future, and I'm going to cry at this. May their empathy and kindness and compassion and strength to remain sensitive and kind through so much hate spread to all of us. I hope to be like them. And finally, I'm just going to wrap up some of our loose ends. Oh, Abby. So 
I wanted to talk a little bit about Ted's chameleon ability, because if you remember back to episode one, I had a very controversial statement that I don't think he really did. I think he was great at playing. I think he was great at putting on a face. I think he could do pretty much anything for a set period of time if it got him enough attention. (laughs) Yep. But I think the people that he was closest to, if they saw the red flags, they simply refused to acknowledge the color, right? And I want to talk about Liz because you might be wondering where Liz has been, right? Yes. He got married and divorced. Where the fuck is Liz? Well, they broke up in 1974. (laughs) And again, I'm not going to rehash all of it, but essentially... After that Lake Sammamish double homicide in one day where Ted went to the beach, showed himself, took two women. Liz had just been getting sober and eventually went to AA and did a lot of work on herself while Ted went out to school. And it was during that time right after that she eventually tried to distance herself and did. But she she said she couldn't help but think what a good weapon the quote unquote club of a cast would have been. For a man at the beach with a broken arm. Mm. And then she remembered that at some point she saw this plaster of Paris on his desk. And he was like, well, you just never know when you're going to break a leg. So he had like cast materials with him. And it was at that point when she was sober and all of this was coming back that she was like, all right, we're, we're reporting it. And this is brave. This is huge because... Either way, your relationship with that person changes forever. Yeah. Either they didn't do it and you have to admit that you believed this person could do that or they did and you have to come to terms with the fact that you were going to marry them if the cards fell right. You had them around your family, around your child. Mm-hmm. And either like either way, that is a terrifying position to be put into. Yeah. But she did. She called it in. And the police had already had tips and already decided that they didn't think Ted would be the killer because superficially he was like such a good guy, an upstanding member of society. (sighs) But two months later, after Ted moved to Utah and the kidnaps began happening there, Liz then called King County Police. Yes, Liz. And what they said was they'd already looked into Bundy and cleared him. My God. So Liz did her part twice and twice... She was failed. And I just want that out there because I don't think that Liz, Liz didn't cover up anything. Liz didn't try to hide this. Liz didn't say, no, that that might look like him, but I'm just going to cover my eyes and stick my head in the sand. Right. And maybe she did for a little bit while she was struggling with some of the alcohol use. But once she sobered up, she said, the fuck I am and fixed that twice. I do also want to just finish talking about Liz and Molly because I think Molly deserves some recognition in this as well. Yeah. Molly was Liz's child. I believe she was three when Liz and Ted first met. What a beautiful woman. Oh my. Amazing. She is striking. She really is. And I wanted to talk about some of her experience as well because I think this also ties into some of like growing up with a narcissistic PD parental figure and also that person is Ted Bundy. So I think it's an important roundabout to sort of just finish this description of what he was like when he was alive with the reassurance that he's dead because this alone would have made me blow a gasket. Yeah. Molly notes some magical times as a kid, like going to the zoo or the park with Ted, looking at animals and giggling and being on his shoulders, right? Mm 
Or the time her cat had a litter and Ted literally CPR'd a stillborn kitten back to life. Oh, my Magic. goodness. And again, this is the dichotomy of Ted Bundy, right? He saved lives. He saved a cat's life. He saved people's lives. And he also took them. <laughs> but Ted knew nothing, if not the range, because as wonderful as he could be, he could be just as terrifying. Molly remembers a game of hide and seek when she was just seven, where she found Ted under a blanket entirely naked. Oh, Ted laughed it off because he said he could become invisible, but his clothes couldn't. And he didn't want her to find him. As they played, Molly recounts noticing that he had an erection, but obviously not knowing what it is at the time. From Oxygen, about Molly's part in a memoir she co-authored with her mom, which is titled The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy, Molly says, I tried to shove him out of the way, and comedically, Ted fell down to the shower mat, where he sat cross-legged covering his penis with his two hands. As the two continued to laugh and wrestle, Molly says that she saw that he had an erection, although as a young child, she didn't recognize what it was at the time. She just noticed its reddish-purple color and thought Bundy was hurt, so she kept asking him whether or not he was okay. Oh. Bundy replied that it didn't hurt, but Molly says there was a noticeable change in his eyes and demeanor. The pupils of his eyes had become tiny, as small as the point of a pencil, she writes, adding that she saw something dangerous in the eyes staring back at her. Molly told Ted that she was tired and wanted to go to sleep, but he insisted on reading her a bedtime story, so they both climbed up into her top bunk. She soon noticed the sheet was all wet. She says, you peed, remembering shouting, although not truly understanding what had happened. There's nothing magical in that. There's no degree. There's no amount of gardening. There's no clean cut dressed up anything you can do to tell me that there isn't a monster inside that man's body. Mm. She also recalls a time that she and her mother were at Green Lake with Ted. He had brought a yellow raft to the lake and the three were enjoying a relaxing afternoon. Liz was like tanning or reading sort of on the side and Molly and Ted were playing in the lake. And Molly jumped into the water to swim. But when she began to tire and wanted to return to the raft, Bundy kept pulling it just out of her reach. Oh. Floundering, she gave up and swam the longer distance to the shore. She arrived exhausted, panting and crying and threw herself on a blanket where her mom had been sunbathing. Oh. And Molly, Molly's an amazing woman. She really is. Even as a kid, an amazing girl. There was a moment in this history before Ted was executed that he wrote to Liz. He wrote her a lot of things. And Molly found the letter and she burned it. She burned it before she even told Liz that it was there. She said that she didn't want him to quote unquote sink his claws back into her. And if that doesn't tell you what dark shadowy shit went on behind closed doors in that family... I don't know what will, because this is the kid that saw him breathe a kitten back to life. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't want him to get his claws in her mom. And he was the only father figure that she knew. So what did she have to really compare it to? Right. And she still was like, no, no. And she's probably just seen her mom get her life back. Yeah. And that's what she says, right? Like her mom got sober. Her mom got it together. And. I believe this was the Amazon Prime series, The Falling for a Killer, because that was pretty much entirely about Liz. Mm-hmm. But she talks about how later he called 
Liz. And he was like, why didn't you answer my letter? And that's how she found out. Wow. So he was pretty caught up on that. I think that if he loved anyone, Liz was the closest to it. If he was capable of that. And it makes you wonder if part of the appeal of her to him was that she was a woman struggling. Oh, absolutely. And that's what I think the attachment theory gets into. Because we mentioned very briefly at the very beginning of the first episode of this series that attachment theory, I think, plays a huge role into the people that were closest with Ted that didn't see it. So just talking about Liz and Anne Rule, both of them were at a very precarious moment in their lives. Liz was an unwed single mother trying to figure out what she was going to do when she met the straight-edged, straight-laced guy who's going to be a law student and believes in this future as like a judge or an attorney or someone doing something good for the world. And then he comes around and he brings her kid gifts and he's silly and goofy and can make pancakes on Sunday. And when someone's not around, which he wasn't all the time, they never lived together. He might have stayed over, but he didn't move in with her. And when he's going to school and away, your brain just fills in that they're going to be the way they are with you when they're other places, Mm -hmm. especially when you see that with someone like Ted. And there's no amount of gardening or chores or pancakes you can flip to show someone that if you're not going to hurt them, you're not going to hurt them. But that's because you know them. You know, her over there with the with the long straight hair and the part in the middle. Yeah, I'll hurt her, but not you. And Mm. cognitive dissonance is a hell of a drug. I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you don't know what it is, cognitive dissonance is this phenomenon in psychology where your brain slowly starts to change its opinion when your actions and your beliefs don't add up. So if I was like, I think it's wrong to take bribes, but I had a position of power and someone was like, hey, let's go get dinner on me. That's a slippery slope into, hey, let's go out for, I don't know, I'm not a business guy, 18 rounds of golf right? Rounds. Well, holes, whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Let's go out for golf. And then that's, you know, a slippery slope into, well, here's a gift into a slippery slope of like, well, come on, guy, you know me, just you know, hook me up. And so that's kind of the cognitive dissonance conundrum is you can say, I believe this is wrong, but each little action that you take in the opposite direction, in the opposite direction will change your mind just that little bit. And so people, our brains do wild fucking gymnastics to let us be okay with these things that we otherwise would never be okay with. And that's kind of the shit of it, right? That's life because that's your brain. Then at the end of the day, you're the one left thinking the thing you didn't think you wanted to think. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of fucked. (laughs) And I think that's bananas. Right. And rule, same thing. At a very delicate time in her life, she was dealing with the fatality of her husband the ending of her marriage he had cancer and they were trying to get divorced and she was like i can't divorce a guy with cancer Mm. but also you know he's only got so long to live if he doesn't want to be with me i want him to have a happy last however much but that's a lot of weight and that's a lot of choice with two daughters and trying to figure out what you now a single mom in the 70s are going to do to support you and your kids and so ted was the sounding board right she met him at an overnight call center where they were both on the crisis line and they just talk to each other or go through crises together 
So it's like trauma bonding and then information dumping. And you hope that the person whose advice you're taking is a decent person because mm-hmm. you are and you'd only take decent advice, right? And so it's not that I think either of these women purposefully ignored signs. I don't think either of them saw something and chose not to believe it. I think this is a very normal and natural psychological thing, but I don't think that there were no red flags. I really think, again, to quote Bojack Horseman, if you look at someone through rose-colored glasses, all the red flags just look like flags. You have to be able to take them off. I see what you're saying. Yeah. You just, you have to be able to take a step back. And that's why if you have friends and family and they don't like your partner, hear them out. You know, mm. you're looking at them like, oh, this is the best person in the world. And they're looking at them like this schmuck you brought home. And maybe they're fine. And what your family member or friend is caught up on is that their earlobes are too big and you don't give a fuck. But maybe what they're caught up on is you're dating Ted Bundy. I don't know. And I think that there's a a theme in the women that he kept close to him because they were all hurting yes liz was hurting liz was struggling with an addiction she was a single mom at a time where it was frowned upon she certainly wasn't very social she was very shy kept to herself right and rule you just talked about her situation even carol boone who he married yeah had a child from a previous marriage so these women that he gets close with you know i keep going back to what you said either last episode or or part one about him talking about finding out who his birth mom was and that it was really his sister who he was raised as you know her little brother but really it was his mom that when his friend was like oh it's not you know you weren't adopted i mean they did everything they could to keep you and he's like yeah well you're not the bastard yeah you know because he saw himself as the bastard and it was like he sought out women who had children that would have been called a bastard yeah and clung to that because he probably preyed on their need or their want yeah to societally not be looked at like that and so maybe they're more willing to overlook some of my flaws right because hey i've been in that situation i've been down on my luck but not only that but i know i've lived in a family where i've seen that play out and i know how to play the game right well and another part of it too is that if you think culturally if you think just sort of in the realm of women in society these are not women that would be considered like the best in the world and not because they're not this has nothing to do with their actual character but in society at a time where it was frowned upon to be a single mother where it was kind of questioned if you were like yep i'm a career woman and a mother and you know carol boone got out of an extremely abusive relationship if i remember correctly from those documentaries so for her, it was like, this man's not beating me every night. Great. Amazing. Wonderful. Another woman who was in a position that she might overlook some of right. those flags that were leaning red. And this is why I say attachment theory, I think, has so much to do with it. Because there is a healthy attachment, right? Someone who says, I know my needs and wants are going to be met here. And if not, I know that I'm okay to walk away and find another place where they will be because mm-hmm. they will be. And that's sort of that secure attachment style. Well, Ted was very avoidant. 
he was very much like i'm gonna run away if shit hits the fan Mm -hmm. and not because he's not ready to have a fight or he won't talk about it with someone but because for him he knows that the women he picks are going to take that as proof that they're wrong he's going to pick women who will internalize that avoidance as him avoiding them not him avoiding the situation and these women will fight harder to keep him right have more of an anxious attachment style where they say, I don't know if my needs and wants are going to get met somewhere else. I know some of them are met here. I'm going to fight for that because I know some of them are met here. And so when you run away, I'm gripping harder. My my knuckles are white. And he's saying, perfect, right where I want you. Oh, I want to hit him. Oh, I want to do more than hit him. I know. (laughs) I would forego my desire to hit him and let every single one of those family members of the victims. Oh, same. Like y'all get how I say a half hour lights off cameras off <laughs> cameras off mics just happen to not be on you know but don't kill them leave enough for the next one okay okay but do your worst without that everyone gets a chance you included and we don't believe in murder <laughs> you included yes <laughs> if he happens to die from a bunch of wounds from the people that he's murdered that's not just what that's not my business just okay? blame it on a porn addiction you'll be fine yeah literally. <laughs> Well, and it it is just interesting to me that Molly went through all of that and she still knew like somewhere. No, like I'm not letting that happen again. Yeah. And I think so. We've talked about this before, but I'll say it again. There's a book called The Gift of Fear. Yes. And it is almost entirely about trusting your gut and why you should. And there are parts that are graphic and there are parts that could be tough to read, but I promise you it is worth the read and it very well could save a life. And when I have children, they will read that book when they're of an appropriate age. (laughs) Yeah. But there is something so innate in us. There is something in our caveman DNA and whatever this electric jelly is between our ears (laughs) that tells us that when you have this feeling that someone or something is not right, you should trust it. Yep. And this book talks about that and why and how you should rely on that. It seems like so many people that interacted with him, if they felt that, they ignored it. Right. And At it least seems on like a, on a more frequent basis. You know what I mean? Yeah. And with Molly, it was like she was like, mm, yeah, no, because in her eyes, I'm sure she's not really aware of how bad he is yet right i mean she's heard about the things he's accused of and whatever but i'm sure that her mom has tried to keep her sheltered from that oh yeah she doesn't have another parental figure that she could compare him to like well ted acted this way and mom's boyfriend now acted this way and well these things never happened with with this or things like that where there wasn't anything to cross-reference you don't know if it's bad unless you've really had good Or you know what good is supposed to be or what okay is supposed to be. Otherwise, it just is. And there's not a label for that. It's not good or bad. It's just the situation, the circumstances, the fact. And usually, especially as a kid, what you think everybody goes through. If you've got nothing to compare it to, you assume that everybody goes home to a house just like yours. And unless you are forced to see otherwise, it really doesn't click until you get a little bit older. And in a way, there's a beauty in that, yeah. in that innocence that you are supposed to be so selfish as a kid because God, it's hard enough just figuring out how to live. <laughs> yeah. But for this child, Molly growing up, 
having to learn the horrors of that that were in her home and also trying to protect her mom from that it was like she had to trust her gut in that and so i will always plug that book and it's so good the giveaway may or may not have a copy of it i'm just saying i'm just saying but i'll let abby tell you about that so i will say i do want to wrap us up here with what we have for ted piece of shit knees of steel bundy and i will take a moment at the very end here to remember all of the victims but as we learned last week there is not an easy way to transition out of that so just really quick I'm going to remind you all that today is the last day to sign up for our giveaway. So get on it. All you have to do is make sure you're following us on Instagram. If you have one, share that 100th post and show us proof of you rating or reviewing. Ideally both. And if you do anything extra, you'll get more entries. So we are very excited for that. But literally tonight at midnight, it's the last time. So get on it. Also, we believe in you. You can do it. Yeah, you can. Ooh, what a fun lunch activity. <laughs> so other than that, though, you can find that on our Instagram, which would be at about time for true crime pod with periods in between every word. And there you would be able to find our resources, the victims, the people, the places, the things that we talk about. You could send us DMs. You could laugh at memes. But if you wanted to send us anything longer, like a case recommendation or your pod pets or you know, anything fun of that nature, you could email that to us. But Allie, where would they do that? So they would email us at, I apologize for my voice. It's getting, we're wrapping up the night here. So I'm a little extra. Uh, sicky. Sultry. Who? I was going to say. I mean, yes. Yeah, sicky. Sultry. Um, so you would email us. Don't email that because that's a lot. Sicky, sultry at gmail no um it's about <laughs> time the number four tc at gmail.com so that's a b o u t t i m e numeric four tc at gmail.com okay so i'm just going to take a moment to remember the victims i'm going to start with the ones we talked about today just like last week but i will end it with an entire list today we talked about the victims margaret bowman lisa levy Kathy Kleiner, Karen Chandler, Cheryl Thomas, and Kimberly Leach. In totality, Ted has confessed to, and we have talked about the majority of, Karen Epley, 18, Linda Ann Healy, 21, Donna Manson, 19, Susan Rancourt, 18, Roberta Parks, 20, Brenda Ball, 22. George Ann Hawkins, 18. Denise Nasland, 18. Janice Ott, 23. Nancy Wilcox, 16. Melissa Smith, 17. Laura Aim, 17. Carol DeRanch, 18. Deborah Kent, 17. Karen Campbell, 23. Julie Cunningham, 26. Denise Oliverson, 24. Melanie Cooley, 18. Lynette Culver, 12. Susan Curtis, 15. Margaret Bowman, 21. Lisa Levy, 20. Kathy Kleiner, 20. Cheryl Thomas, 21. And Kimberly Leach, 12. And that is our series on our piece of shit 
Theodore needs a fucking bionicle steel Bundy. May he forever rot in hell. And may the victim's memories live on. I think they stop living on when we stop talking about them. Hell yeah. And I hope that we all can tackle such difficult things with the same kindness and sensitivity that many of these victims' families have shown. Not only each other, but even Ted's family. The fact that the mothers could have a conversation to be like, as a mother who's lost a child to another mother who's lost a child. I'm so sorry. And I see you. Chills. So, if I had to end it with a call to action, I would say let's try to be a little more like them. Yeah. But, if I do look at my watch, that was... About time for true crime. Bye. Take care of yourself.